Welcome to Consumed, the podcast that stokes conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. I'm Jamie Lewis, and this 18th season, I speak with folks across California, from Santa Barbara to the Bay Area, covering subjects as varied as lab-grown meat and artificial intelligence, food writing and pizza, hot vegan takeout, Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir, carbon steel skillets, closing the loop on food systems, happy meals, charcuterie, agritourism, and much more. I hope you get to hear all of it. Thanks for listening. Before we jump in, I want to share a few words about our sponsors. Casa du Metz is a boutique winery in Los Alamos celebrating its 12th year in this historic one-horse town. Their attention and motivation is captured by creating aromatic fresh wines that defy expectation. With three brands, Casa du Metz, Clementine Carter, and The Feminist Party, their goal is to highlight the beauty and bounty of Santa Barbara wine country. They have a particular sweet spot for Rhone variety wines sourced from Cool Climate Vineyard Partners in the Santa Rita Hills. Join them for their popular weekly speaker series, monthly wine club vineyard tours, Malibu sessions, and a unique tasting experience where you choose your own wine adventure. Join the discovery with Casa du Metz and their sister business, Babby's Beer Emporium, next door to explore quirky craft beers and bubbles while enjoying dumplings and spicy wings from Dim Sama. 2023 marks their 19th vintage, and they want to celebrate with you. Visit casadumetz.com. For more information. Consumed is sponsored by Slow Life magazine. Since 2010, Slow Life has celebrated the culture of San Luis Obispo with features on the people, influences, products, and businesses that keep the city moving and shaking. For the last eight years, I've written the food column in Slow Life magazine, in which I cover restaurants and food trends here. More and more, I've seen how devoted the magazine's following is. Readers love learning about their community and weaving into the fabric of this very special place. To learn how you can subscribe or get in on the action, visit slowlifemagazine.com. We all know eating fruits and veggies is an important part of staying healthy. Fresh, local produce has the most flavor and nutrition, but how do you know what's in season locally? Become part of the Tally community as a member of the Tally Farms Box Program. Tally grows their produce and partners with other California farmers to include the freshest and best-tasting local produce you can find anywhere. Farming on the Central Coast since 1948, the Tally family created the Tally Farms Box to make healthy eating easy and affordable. Here's how it works. Select which size box you want, then choose pickup or home delivery and how often you want to get your box. It's flexible for customization and vacation holds, and included in all boxes are tested recipes and storage recommendations. Come be a part of Tally's healthy lifestyle. Visit tallyfarmsbox.com and use promo code CONSUMED for $10 off your first box. That's promo code CONSUMED for $10 off. Eat fresh, eat local, and eat lots of California fruits and veggies for better health. Okay, on to the episode. Shakira Miracle is the executive director of the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network, an advocacy organization that seeks to close the food system loop, promoting access, equity, connection, and creativity within the local food economy. Shakira drove up from Santa Barbara to share the exciting work she's doing with the agency and to chat about what makes networks like Santa Barbara's so important. 
We also talk about Dr. David Cleveland, a previous guest on this podcast, who's a respected researcher in Santa Barbara and an integral part of why the Food Action Network exists. To see his studies and to listen to his episode on the Consume podcast, have a look at the show notes. Okay, here is Shakira Miracle with the Santa Barbara Food Action Network. And yes, I asked about her gloriously wonderful name. Don't worry. Okay, here's Shakira. I kind of love that that you're doing this in your home. It's a huge, it's the third person in the room all the time is the room itself. It's just the fact that like, you know, you saw my daughters wandering in I and out. It. I, a I work at home too. So I, I oh, talk- do you? Oh, yes. The you don't have an office? My- no, we have maintained that we are not going to do a brick and mortar. Because it's unnecessary overhead? Because if we're going to be centered in trust mm-hmm. and relational versus transactional to truly build resilience mm-hmm. and um, localized closed loop food systems. Mm-hmm. It's got to be folks that are actually embedded within their communities informing what the priorities are, where the opportunities Mm. are, where the great assets and gifts are, Mm -hmm. so then we can more effectively interconnect all those folks. So That's rich. Yeah, I have nothing against brick and mortar per se. And Mm. quite frankly, um, I would say more because of COVID and the restrictions that we needed to follow, mm-hmm. less because we're all working at home. There are those of us who are still. Um, I would say that a brick and mortar is vitally important for points in time. Mm-hmm. And we all need a solid foundation under our feet. Mm-hmm. But as a network... If we're truly, if everybody eats and therefore everybody's part of a network, Mm -hmm. then that foundation is literally your home, Mm -hmm. you inviting me in. Mm -hmm. It can be a public health department office. It Mm -hmm. can be um, a restaurant. Yeah. Those places of gathering can and should be more organic. Hmm. So who hmm. knows? Maybe someday there'll be a need for that. Yeah. But I find that the brick and mortar piece needs to be around infrastructure, hmm. not necessarily an address. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah. What does that mean? If, if a brick and mortar needs to be around infrastructure, not an address, you mean the brick and mortar has to be led by the mission of the organization, not the other way around? Yeah, I mean, I would okay. So, for example, yeah, for example, what we need are more community-based. You know, where places are building community and making place, distribution places, mm-hmm. aggregation points, mm-hmm. um, places where chefs can experiment. I mean, remember, cooks are creatives. Yeah, uh, without that deep burden of where am I going to front all this cash? Mm-hmm. I should be focusing on my creativity, my, my craft. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so places where people can experiment and try things, pro- value-added products. Maybe mm-hmm. they, you know, you, you grow or you purchase a, a food in, in, within your region and you have an inspired idea that you got from your grandmother. Yeah. That you could sell widely. Yeah but maybe your kitchen isn't conducive for that, or maybe it is for a period of time, Mm -hmm. 
but you need to leverage a larger commissary kitchen or cold storage space Mm -hmm. so that you have a place to put some of these ingredients while you experiment in your kitchen at home. So the, the other part of that is more like the historic and I would say archaic (laughs) regulatory and legislation pieces where it's like, well, the IRS requires you to have like a, a, um, a physical address so that if ever they need to serve you papers, they can do it. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what lawyers or accountants are for, quite frankly, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so there is a place for a physical address, but I feel that if you're really talking about networks, Mm -hmm. that physical address should be a web of all kinds of different locations doing various things that are building upon an interconnected system. Don't you feel like on this subject in particular, it's important to go to people rather than to wait for them to come to you? Absolutely. I'm thinking about, you know, you're talking about a chef wants to concentrate on their craft and what they're doing in their creative. To me, I think, well, they don't want to just be doing that in a lonesome, empty building and like advertising, which also costs money, a lot of money. And also, honestly, is perhaps not very effective. Yes. It's kind of a crapshoot whether it will work or not. I think of all of the, whether COVID-induced or not, pop-ups, creative kitchen ideas, you know, out and about in the community. I'm sure that that reaches people a lot quicker. Absolutely. Than getting a building and then asking people to come. I'll give you a great example of, where that shows a lot of success. Mm -hmm. There is an accelerated request, demand, for mobile farmer's market trucks, Mm. distribution trucks on like a more regionalized scale, um, uh, refrigerated vehicles so that fisher folk, Mm -hmm. um, certain type of meat or pork, poultry, lamb, goat producers... Um, some uh, uh, produce um, farmers who are in maybe, you know, sort of, they're not siloed, but they're maybe they're out in the country somewhere, mm-hmm. in an unincorporated area, for example. Mm-hmm. And so it gives them the opportunity to get directly to consumer mm-hmm. by going to them. And inst- safely. Very safely. Yeah. And they can build also rebuild that connection from where your food comes from to where it's going on your plate. Yeah. So that increases multiple fold the likelihood that that individual or individuals, the consumers, the eaters are going to continue to rely on those points of Mm -hmm. um, point of sale. So it's in some ways it's not, innovative in that that's what you know if we ever read those like little house on the prairie books for example right do you know i'm sorry but this is new information my brother-in-law discovered that my husband's family is very possibly related to laura ingles wilder how cool is that there anyway so yes you're talking you're talking (laughs) about my family yes so little house on the prairie yes oh i love that so when you know when folks were um, venturing further and further west and doing homesteading, mm-hmm. there was always like a community point, like a central point mm-hmm. where you had your main infrastructure centers. 
but they were reliant on aggregation and transportation points mm-hmm. in all of these other various homesteading locations. Mm-hmm. So not that we're necessarily um, doing that directly or what I'm what I, we're saying is we're aspiring to because we're also sort of limited to nowadays, okay, where are highway systems? Mm-hmm. Where are interstate systems? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, climate change. Mm-hmm. So if there is some sort of external shock to the system, um, some sort of emergency, if you will, we may not have access to some of these transportation uh, corridors. Gosh, I had David Cleveland on from UCSB. Okay, so I adore him. He's very special. Extremely special. You have to listen to this episode because I was like, I went to his house uh, yes. and chatted with him and I just am Was Daniela there? Yes. 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 And I'm blown away by his, there's something to be said for somebody who's been doing this a really long time yes. and seeing the macro patterns in yes. what happens. And his research was so important because it was sort of counterintuitive. Yes. Uh, a lot of people wanted the results of his study, which listener, by the way, the study was about, um, you know, it, if you do get your food locally versus if you get your food from the supermarket, how much impact does that have on climate change? And really high level, what he discovered was not what he expected to discover, which is getting your food locally doesn't necessarily reduce carbon footprint. Um, and that was a very unpopular result, but the science is there. Now, am I saying that local food isn't important for other reasons, social reasons, you know, local economy reasons, all of that, of course. But when it comes down to carbon footprint and miles traveled on the road, it turned out that that was not more beneficial. And so he talks a lot about um, transportation, though, and when when Highway 101 was shut down or when Highway 5 is shut down for weather reasons, weather events, it showed how fragile our food system is. Um, So there is another benefit to having local food, you know, accessible. I think a balance. Yeah. Because um, it's interesting. Okay. So David Cleveland is actually the seed. Mm -hmm. Um, His, his research was the seed that led to this network today. Actually, I, I give him, Full credit, whether he wants it or not. Oh, I'm, this is so wonderful. So, I did not know. Yes. Okay. So back in 2011, um, he started realizing, and of course, like you said, he's he's beyond even 30,000 feet. He's looking at global yes, that's um, true. food systems and intersections with climactic impacts or, or environmental changes or mm-hmm. and, and the reciprocal uh, response or reaction to those two. Right. Mm -hmm. But then he was looking in his own backyard and he was hearing a lot about food insecurity and it Mm -hmm. wasn't adding up. And so he and a team of researchers released a peer reviewed article. Now, of course, this is extremely reductive, (laughs) but again, what I love about Dr. Cleveland is he, he follows the facts. Yes, he really does. I respect that. He's a, he's a truth teller. Yeah. And so, regardless of how those chips fall, he's going to present it as it is. Mm -hmm. So our strategies really should be centered or at least 
take heavily into consideration based on that, those mm-hmm. factual information. And so what he found, again, being very reductive, that in just the county of Santa Barbara, that 99% of the produce that is grown, yes, yeah. is actually exported. And I'm not talking about like a distribution point and then back to Costco. I'm talking mm-hmm. for many years, it was China. The majority was China. That's shifting just a bit. Now mm. it's more Canada, Saudi Arabia, and, and other countries, but still well beyond our borders. Mm-hmm. Now that alone, no one can argue that that's a massive carbon footprint right there, yes. right? Yes, So, and then 95, and that was 2011. So mm-hmm. imagine more than 10 years ago, uh, so it's probably worse. More than 95% of the produce that was consumed in the county was imported from elsewhere. Yeah, it's not, it does not pencil out. It makes no sense. Exactly. And so I think what... did Then did I say it wrong? I thought that I understood that he was saying that like the miles traveled to get local food versus food from far away. I thought that that's what his finding was, was that the carbon footprint really is negligibly different. Well, first of all, I, I need to read what he wrote and mm-hmm. then also hear it, listen to the podcast. So it, your listeners need, yeah, to, be you listening need to go back to that I episode. And I don't want to get what he said wrong because obviously super complex and I'm not well, always the sharpest knife in the that, drawer. No, 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 don't, don't, uh, please do not say that about yourself. Cause I don't, I well, actually my memory agree. isn't always great. Well, my, neither is mine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm there with you. Perio menopause. Oh, so, same. Oh, big time. <laughs> Big time. I was doing this, wiping oh. the sweat. When I'm like, oh, come on, please. You're in like, good company. Oh, it's hard. Yeah. So those two things can also exist at the same time. What two things? So you can have a situation where it doesn't add up, mm-hmm. where so much of an agricultural center, the food leaves it, when, in fact, there are people who... Um, aren't don't have enough to eat, mm-hmm. and that the carbon footprint does not match. That those things can happen at the same time. Mm. What I think, like just from a network perspective, a balance would be more of a what already exists and leverage it and interconnect mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. and then where are the gaps and barriers from production to consumption that can be addressed in a way that if, if you're value centered of starting with how can we do the least harm mm-hmm. in whatever that means mm-hmm. and go from there, chances are that at the end of the day, we can reduce the carbon footprint and a lot more people are centering or having the choice to center their own livelihoods, their own communities with in and around food mm-hmm. in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. So again, I need to, so I haven't read what Same. that Same, I need to go back. But you know, as you're telling me that, I'm thinking also, if you're going to center a community around food, the crazy thing about Santa Barbara County, it is centered around food, whether you realize it or not. How many people are employed? Oh, through agriculture, through, through agriculture that is uh, edible. I mean, I'm not talking cut flowers. I'm talking all of the things that are grown for people to consume. 
how many people are employed by that system. It's huge. Massive. Santa Barbara County is centered on food, whether it's eating that same food that it grows or not. You got it. You got it. And and I want to, so I'll come back again, actually, with that employment piece, but I do want to tie the two, I'll say, with the carbon footprint um, d- uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Because our food system has become so industrialized and so centralized, and this took more than 50 years, this took close to 100 years Mm -hmm. in in increments, um, and then an acceleration in the 1960s and beyond, uh, or forward, I should say. Part of the challenge is, is that more regionalized systems, the infrastructure in order to get food, so distribution points, aggregation Mm -hmm. points, those are gone. Mm -hmm. So the carbon footprint would in fact increase when folks that are trying to become more resilient in Mm -hmm. various ways as it goes around food are having to travel more miles and have to basically be scrappy and figure out how they can leverage a larger scale distribution system. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you come to the other side of it of, with larger, more centralized, again, distribution, aggregation, all of this, waste. Oh, 100%. Right? So yeah. two pieces. So and, and again, like it's so infuriating for all these people who are employed through food. Um, in 2020, one of the things I'll never forget was uh, in sort of north center of California, there was a distribution point for dairy. Mm-hmm. Like well, to Larry County or something? To multiple, pl- hundreds of miles okay. away. Yeah. Um, and because milk distribution is set up for large scale distribution, transportation, mm-hmm. and not more localized yeah, communities. Yeah, it's on a giant truck. And it's packaged mm-hmm. for, you know, Efficiency. large. Mm-hmm. Yes. So because they couldn't easily adapt the packaging for smaller containers to get the food out more quickly to more localized uh, distri- or, uh, uh, or aggregation points, they had to dump tens of thousands of gallons of milk. Ugh. Just dump it. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, what would be very helpful is if we can be thinking about things like where can we aggregate food? Mm-hmm. Because there is tons, you're right, there is not just in Santa Barbara County, across okay. the state of California, California and, is beyond, unbelievable. and beyond. Yes. Um, how can we find ways where we can transport more variety throughout the year and more efficient and climate-friendly cold storage mm-hmm. in more locations mm-hmm. so that the more aggregation and distribution points there are in an efficient way, we can do a both and approach Mm -hmm. where it's a smaller carbon footprint because they are going out to shorter distances. And in case of emergency, you can immediately repurpose. Exactly. So it's, it's the times that we're in. Um, I think that when you talk about employment too, a lot of people feel like there's a lot at stake because so many rely on the food system. And so you're talking about things like livable wages, Mm -hmm. affordable Mm -hmm. housing, housing that is hopefully within or near to the community with which you are working. Mm -hmm. So then your 
extended family can then be educated in or mm-hmm. connect, connected to their kin, mm-hmm. right? Building those communities, of course, again, around resilience. Mm-hmm. We need one another in times. And I think that that's what I'm realizing more and more is a lot of my job um, for right or wrong is I find in becoming less and less like the ability to, to work in larger, larger infrastructure conversations and increasingly responding to natural disasters, responding mm. to pandemics, resp- every, every six months. Wildfire. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, rain events. Oh, yeah. January and March, um, I will tell you, oh, sorry, just mm. a shout out to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> your your listeners might find this funny that I'm saying this, but to your uh, federal state elected's staff, mm-hmm. just want to, I mean, mm-hmm. wow, they're under a lot of, of pressure. Is um, that my buddy Carbajal? Yes, it is. He is. He is my buddy. I just love him. He has been so good to our family. It, I mean, there's a lot to say there, but I got to know him a little bit, uh, weirdly enough, in line for an event. We got to chatting and he's just so down to earth. And, um, he hooked us up with a, we went to DC and hooked up with his staff and had the most meaningful tour of the Capitol building, led us into places that the public is not allowed to go. Mm. And, uh, I, he's just been so supportive and he's so available. So available. Yeah. Anyway, I'm very proud to be in his constituency for sure. Absolutely. Um, oh, the stories I could tell about effective legislation Mm -hmm. and effective advocacy for our region. Um, So going kind of back to his staff, Mm -hmm. who are definitely that backbone, right? Um, I was on a call uh, with one of his uh, local uh, constituency office uh, staffers, and um, we just became very emotional. And it's not typically, those kind of conversations are not very, they're very like results oriented, yeah. just calling quickly to, you know, A, B, C, touching base about whatever. And then, and then we've got to go our separate ways. Mm-hmm. But that one was different. And I remember um, being told, I was, I was saying, you know, I gotta, I gotta be vulnerable for, I mean, as always, um, <laughs> as always. But in this moment, I gotta be particularly vulnerable. Uh, January and March were hard. Mm -hmm. They were hard because it was very paralyzing to get a lot of calls from a lot of small scale food producers Mm -hmm. and a few people, farm workers who said, I heard about this network. Someone said that Mm. if we call you, then maybe you can tell us where to go or who to talk to, but to find food, to find food. Okay. And what was so paralyzing was yes, there, there are emergency funds in various containers, Mm -hmm. but actually because so many people rely on employment through the food system in our region, it's interesting and it was eye-opening to witness how many actually qualify. And mm. there were many, many, many people who actually don't qualify for a lot of this emergency response funding, whether it's FEMA or through. Why you know, not? Um, this is where it's, it's tough to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Does it have anything to do with immigration? Sure does. Okay. Thank you. You took okay. care of it for me. There it is. Thank you. Moving on. Mm-hmm. And so during this conversation, I said that I, I just had to cry. I was like, it was so paralyzing. And the staffer said to me, you know, COVID was hard. COVID was really hard. The floods broke us. And there's still the fun, you know, funny, not ha ha, but just, um, the times that we're in, but then we hung up and they just kept moving Mm -hmm. forward and Mm -hmm. they, and they continue to this day and they will continue on. Um, and that's why I think, um, I don't know how we got to here on this conversation. No, no, it's important. It's, it's, I'd love to tell you because it's so true. And I, and we can, like, maybe this is another converse, like a second and a third conversation, Mm -hmm. but there's so much richness. There's so much like nutrition. I mean, I can tell you about foods that I have learned that have been game changing for me, like Mm -hmm. jujubes, Mm -hmm. like the, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I say that people are like, what's a jujubee? And and, and it has incredible nutritional powers and it's grown in the County. I love talking about the, telling those stories I think what I'm driving at is we don't have the luxury of just stewing in and marinating in just the richness of the various um, flavors. What we have to be thinking about is how much in the most efficient way that does the least amount of harm can we put in this stew pot Mm -hmm. that can be the most nutritional that can feed the most amount of people Mm -hmm. and that can be value added to themselves, Mm -hmm. whether they take that recipe and they replicate it in their own community and then they share it out and then folks needs are met and an abundance can be felt Mm -hmm. and they know they've got that pot for the next emergency. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's sort of a metaphor for the the word resilience I know has been used a lot. I would say another word is um, preparation mm-hmm. in all things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I'm looking in your kitchen right now. Oh God. Another reason what do why you I see? love, oh, I see a lot of amazing things. A lot of, <laughs> but what, one of the things I'm looking at is right in front of me, so I can see, you know, your French coffee carafe. Yeah. And then you've got your container of, of tools right by that, you know, yeah. your cooking tools and your knives and you've got that salt grinder and you've got your olive oil yeah. and why that's so in the, and you've got your recipe book right next to that. <laughs> and then paper towels. Yes, yes, exactly. Critical. All yes. the needs, all the needs. Yes. Um, and why I, I bring that up is because there are so many of those tools in front of you that are multi-purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're core needs they can do a multitude of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think that as we enjoy what they can produce, we also need to be thinking about how we can leverage each of those tools Mm -hmm. in order to create... To do the most. Yes. And in in the most vibrant... Like, the great thing about food is that you can build abundance and it tastes so good. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm looking even at your olive oil right now. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor, again, that comes to mind is... Well, it's literal, actually. It's not just figurative. 
what we're working alongside and, and supporting um, uh, small, midterm, even large-scale producers are having these conversations in a multitude of ways. Mm-hmm. What should we be transitioning to? Because now we don't have a choice. Uh-huh. And that olive oil is a perfect example where there are an increasing number of areas where olive oil is being produced in this region. Yeah. Because it's climate smart. Yeah. You, it's, you, can, you can use dry farming methods. Mm-hmm. It's a Mediterranean climate. So yeah. it, you're not causing that added harm and of any so additional. And it's so nutritious on so many levels. It's also just u- so utilitarian. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you just did it. There, you just <laughs> thank you for the soundbite for exactly what we do and how it benefits each oh, and every person. Yeah. It is luscious. It is nutritious. But it is you're utilitarian. Saying, so you're saying, where are we going? Because we don't have a choice. But I'd be willing to bet, and I'm not going to ask you to name names, but there is resistance to that. Hmm. There is for sure resistance to, well, why should we change anything? This works. I don't want it coming out of my ass. I want, you know, I want it to be, I just, status quo is fine for me. I love that. that though, those individuals are my favorite people. And I'll tell you why. Hmm. I am someone who is from Kentucky. I come oh. from a long line of coal miners and railroad engineers to transport to transport the coal and um, uh, food business chain. So food chain entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, I know all sides. So. Why I bring that? Oh, and by the way, mm-hmm. someone has who has lived in the heart of um, large-scale agricultural production in um, Southwest Arizona, bordering California mm. and Mexico, right in it. Right. Um, I've lived in a maquiladora, so I mm. all the th- China. I've lived in industrial centers. We got to go back China. to all that, but continue your yes. thought because oh, I want to know all of it. I'm telling you, it. one hour is not enough for you and I. Um, <laughs> we'll continue with something to eat after. Okay. So why I bring all that up is the reality is, is that we're not talking about adding cost, taking away from what we're saying is, as we've always done, whether we had the help or not is adapt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we humans do. Yeah. That's what, (laughs) that's what the, the tiniest molecule does. Yes. Right. But I'm not saying adapt just for means of survival. I'm saying adapt. And, and, and by the way, it doesn't have to be a political conversation because we all eat. Yeah. Every single one of us. But we all also are, I mean, we have a negativity bias. We've evolved to be some we have you know you think about lizard brain and selfishness we are in an we are evolving right now as as a species but there is also yes we all eat but we also all have our little fiefdom that we have to take care of and if we're making a ton of money doing xyz and someone's saying we have to adapt but it's going to remove some of my X, Y, Z, then I might be resistant to that. And you don't have to tell me anything more than that, but that's something I see. It does become political because it's about money. Uh, What I hear is not necessarily politics, but fear. Totally fear. At the center with human beings, it's fear. Yeah. And what I would say to that is 
if we can come at, if we can approach how we eat, what we eat, um, and how we can create systems with which all people can eat and have options for what it is that we eat, mm-hmm. what I find are, um, let's say like large scale, um, agriculture, uh, meat, poultry, et cetera, production, there's great opportunity there mm-hmm. because by the way, they are the ones that have those supply chain systems. They have aggregation points. Mm. They have distribution. They're good points. at it. Yeah. Very. And they need a workforce. And so there's an economic argument for building utilitarianism and abundance by thinking not as a scarcity mindset, but as an asset based and saying, y'all have all this knowledge. Mm -hmm. You have all this experience. You have all this capability rather than talking about you having to give something up. What can we do to work together Mm -hmm. that can, you can, continue in this sort of abundance, have something for, you know, that you want to pass on to your children, your grandchildren, Mm -hmm. and you have a workforce that is also abundant because then you retain that workforce Mm -hmm. and that workforce has a reciprocal benefit. Believes in in you and what you're doing and what they're doing for you. And you can make that economic case that at the end of the day, the abundance will be maintained more so by the folks that stay on your team Mm -hmm. than those who leave. And especially those who then don't come back and um, go against you, Mm -hmm. right? For Mm -hmm. A, B, C, and D. So what I'm hearing a lot from like larger scale ag is we, we need to maintain a reliable workforce. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we can get to that point. How can we meet the needs collectively from various sectors working together so that you can have an abundance in your workforce and a retention in your workforce mm-hmm. and, a, and a happy workforce, a, ha- a workforce that is reflected in, at the end of the day, all you're trying to do, which is feed people. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of an example. I don't mean to harbor on this negativity, but I, um, you're very uh, positive. You're a positive person. And I'm starting to think it might be because you're from Kentucky. <laughs> My friend Brent Burchett. I'm a proud Kentuckian. Do you know Brent Burchett, by nope. the way? Nope. He is the head of the San Luis Obispo County Farm Bureau. And oh. he is from Kentucky. And he is just a delight to talk to. And I think you guys have actually meet, would have, have a lot. Have well, to meet him. And your work, I think, is mm-hmm. there's there are a lot of overlaps. I'm thinking of a particular instance that really illustrates what I'm talking about. So, um maybe in 2008 or 2009, Michael Pollan was emerging as a real authority on mm. um, the benefits of small ag. I mean, down to like your garden plot and why that's important for a multitude of reasons. And he came, uh, I don't remember who invited him. Uh, there's a group on campus, I'm forgetting the name, but it's about sustainability. And they invited Michael Pollan to come speak at Cal Poly University. And he agreed, and he was supposed to be just kind of like a keynote guy on his own doing this um, this talk. And when so Cal Poly is very pro ag, absolutely, and, and they're good at it, and they're very good at it. They are a bellwether, a leader in the absolutely. industry. Absolutely. Um, well, they also have a lot of donors who are big, big ag, and they were very threatened by what Michael Pollan might come and say. And I wonder why. <laughs> so no, I really, I 
I don't oh. say that. I'm, oh, because he's so anti like Monsanto and, um, you know, the big, all of the, you know, the four big beef, uh, providers and uh, the way that slaughterhouses work. I mean, he's just very against the giant ag that, you know, it comes at a very serious cost to those Mm. who work for it, to those who um, eat it. He talks a lot about how giant scale, again, aggregate uh, production points. Yes, they leverage their giantness to reduce costs, but it comes at somebody's out of somebody's um, benefit. I'm not saying this very well, but anyway, so the, the someone has to pay, somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. Yes. It doesn't happen for free. It's, you know, it's the theory of relativity. You know, you do something, there's going to be a reaction. It has to work that way. So anyway, the investors or the the donors got really upset and influenced, I don't know if it was the president or who, somebody in leadership to provide a panel. So now we've got, I think it was two or three other voices who were big ag along with Michael Pollan. So now we have this, you could call it balanced, but you could also call it like reactionary and afraid. Mm. Um and it made me sad because Michael Pollan could have had a lot of influence over a student attending that who maybe came from, you know, big ag. Um, a lot of big ag f- families wind up at Cal Poly and it could have changed the way they thought about it. But instead, we've got these reinforcing voices. It just it upset a lot of people in the community and it upset Michael Pollan. And he was I went to this talk and he came right out at the beginning and said, I want to tell you that this is a ridiculous situation. It's not, you know, it comes from fear and it's not right. And there was a lot of applause. Anyway, I'm taking up too much time talking about this, but there it does become political because it has something to do with money. And right now things are so polarized and extreme in politics that the food discussion can get really wrapped up in negativity. But people like you who come at it from a collaborative standpoint and how can we make the most of what we've got because it's a lot. I think that that could be the hope for a transitioning food system. Yeah, I, I'll put it this way. To build on that, that, that perspective of Michael Pollan and the ridiculous situation. Mm-hmm. It's an air quote. Yeah. As I'm driving up, what the, so by the way, what a privilege it was to come to you <laughs> to drive through these beautiful uh, it's just the most gorgeous drive, Santa Barbara to slow, yeah, and just a reminder of of what's at stake mm-hmm. quite frankly, mm-hmm. and I listen a lot to news, yeah on the radio all the time, and various i, I switch I'm all one of these people who just constantly switch and switch and switch all over the place. I'm curious mm-hmm. and without spending time on this podcast to go outside of, of the centering of, of what we're talking about. But ironically, that's what I've tried to tell people is food touches everything. Yeah. So I was listening to, um, story after story at the state level of various states of where state legislatures are focused on creating, um, new legislation about, regardless of the, the, I want to be crystal clear. I'm not 
driving a stake into the heart of, you know, like whatever your personal values are. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. my concern is, is that the very people who are afraid of being sheep Mm -hmm. are the very people who are buying into these false flags sort of rather than what my takeaway was after every single story rather than focus on these sort of isolated, um, again, I'm sure there are groups of people that these, that these, that that these issues are very important, Mm -hmm. but all I could think about was meanwhile, Mm. does everybody in that state have a living wage? Right. Yes. How about student loans? Mm -hmm. Are they drowning in that? Mm -hmm. Not because of necessarily ironically ever getting financial literacy education which doesn't exist but you know the cost continuing to go up and no one's asking that question Mm -hmm. and all of these things right i'm sorry i digress it's okay no one's talking about does everyone have access to health care and good health care yeah is anybody talking about the cost of housing yeah and where housing is and quality of housing yeah there's a lot of talk actually about like safety and crime. What are <laughs> yes. the origins of, of these issues around safety and crime? Mm-hmm, what are mm-hmm. the, you know, what is causing that? Could it be that people's needs are not met? Mm-hmm, Could mm-hmm. it be? Like systemically. Of, thank you. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. We've got to be careful and mindful of isolated, um, triggering, subjects Mm -hmm. and instead take a a large systemic view and ask yourself if you're truly concerned like this this within your little fiefdom if you're truly concerned about your needs being met why aren't you spending the time and energy that you have in this very fleeting short life Mm -hmm. advocating and fighting if you will i mean i'm not advocating for you know sort of aggression but but putting that passion and 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 anger behind your family's needs being met and why those things aren't being centered. Mm -hmm. I really hope if anybody is listening or going, you know, going to be listening to this at all ever, the one takeaway they have is, especially when it comes to food, instead of asking more the, you know, what about them Mm -hmm. and they and other, and it's their fault and, I'm actually giving you permission to be selfish and Mm. ask yourself, why? Why are you so broken? Why are you so sad? Why are your needs not being met? Why is whoever they are Mm. causing, you know, why do you feel like um, you have someone to blame? It took decades to get where we are Mm -hmm. or more. Mm -hmm. It's going to take that long or longer to change unless we start thinking upstream yeah. Yeah. about the causes of how we got here. Mm-hmm. And people will find that we have more in common mm-hmm. in the origin story of where your pain points are mm-hmm. than we have divided amongst mm-hmm. us. Very well said. I'm reading a book right now called Outlive by Peter Atia. It's mm. really interesting. It's about it I think it says like the science and art of longevity, which 
I've never been a fountain of youth person, but I heard him on a podcast. It's so interesting what he covers. It's a really different approach to everything. He talks a lot about being proactive with health, not even just preventative, but proactive, like really scaling up to be able to sustain and absorb challenges as you age. He talks a lot about, you know, nobody wants to spend the last decade of their life, um, just surviving, which is how so many people do with chronic disease. Anyway, I'm going way off track. No, you're not. What you're talking about is an exact parallel to what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I was talking with my husband like a day or two ago about um, conversations that we've been having with our colleagues and uh, friends and family, and then things that we're reading. And I said, you know, it's really interesting he will the, the actual <laughs> the center of the conversation started with talking about retirement. Sure. Well, you and have to talk that way. Of course you do. Yeah, yes. you do. And so what, what it, it this is always this is what I love about the yin and yang of our relationship is he's like here and now and there's something we got to deal with and mm-hmm. let's fix mm-hmm. this. And where I'm like is then I go, you know, 30,000 feet. Yeah. Let's reverse engineer it. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that we came to was people are living so much longer now. I had a talk again, I'm not digressing. I'm pulling it all Mm -hmm. together. Had a conversation with a girlfriend on the weekend that she was visiting some mutual friends who are now in early Mm nineties. And then she shifted over and telling me how her parents are doing her, 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 sorry, her father's in his Mm nineties. And I mean, this is not like a, they're sitting in a, um, a home of some sort mm-hmm. and someone is spoon feeding them broth. These folks are putting around on cruise they're living. ships and yeah. you got it and going to the grocery store and mm-hmm. getting out in, you know, in their garden when they can in their nineties. Yeah. And so what, what we came to was parallel to what we're talking about before we are in a time of exciting new technology, new information. Mm -hmm. New information is coming all the time, plus the abundance of historical information. Mm -hmm. This is a point in time that happens about every 50 years where what we do now, the decisions that we make, are going to impact the next 50 years Mm -hmm. in a very real way. If we're living longer, how are we going to live? What is that going to look like? Yeah. And when you talk about that idea of being proactive of day to day, you're building up that sort of um, adaptivity or ability yeah. to be yes. adaptive and more resilient while also enjoying yourself along the yes, way. Yes, it has to be that way because nobody wants to live, uh, you know, alone. Because and- it's not living. Yeah. Yeah. He calls it the difference between a lifespan, which we medicine and and modern science has been very good at Mm -hmm, improving mm -hmm. lifespan, but health span is a different way of thinking about it. Listen, Shakira, Mm. I want to make sure we're talking about what you want to talk about. So can you, can you really quick, um, this is a little bit of a test, but can you say what the mission of Santa Barbara Food Action Network is? Absolutely. So the mission of the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network Mm -hmm. um, is to ultimately build a more resilient regional food system for years and years and years to come. Mm -hmm. How we do that is by being stewards of the Food Action Plan. So the Santa Barbara County Food Action Plan published in 2016 at that time with whom um, informed it, identified 16 goals. Mm -hmm. 
Among those 16 goals, the idea is that if we all, so by the way, we all eat. Yeah. So whenever I talk about food system actors, food system change makers. It's you, it's me, it's all the people. Every single one of us. And the choices that we make throughout the day each day. Mm -hmm. About what we eat, where it came from, where we bought it, etc. How we prepared it, etc. The feelings we have about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the feelings. So if all of us in whatever small or large way or collaborative way or, you know, unilateral way at times are activating one or more of those goals. Ultimately, we believe that we will be building resilience Mm -hmm. through the activation of these goals. And so what that looks like in a network perspective is much more Mm place-based. It's ground up. We are used to top down, horizontal, horizontal kind of being tied up without choice in many ways to our, or limited in our choices based on whatever system that we're within. Mm -hmm. And so what we're saying is that we have more agency and power than we realize. Mm -hmm. We do have choice. We do. I know that there are situations. So here's the other piece is since the activation of the, or sorry, the publication of the plan, what happened? Fires, flooding, oh debris flow, shut down the 101, killed yes. multiple dozen people. Yes. A global pandemic. Right. The murder of George Floyd. Yeah, and fire. And countless, yeah. exactly, names of people as well, mm-hmm. similar to him. Additional fires. Mm-hmm. The shocking flooding as mm-hmm. recently as this year. An insurrection. An Sorry. insurrection. I'm, I'm like really touching down on the stuff. An insurrection. It's been a lot, yeah. It's a lot. So what's interesting about that in one way is, um, and it's, it's sort of amoral, it's, it's just an observation, yeah. mm-hmm. the acceleration of these big events, big events that increasingly touch each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. It's no longer sort of isolated where you kind of read it in the paper, watch it on the news. Yeah, it's, and it's here. Like, it's on your doorstep. All the time. Yeah. And so what we're realizing is that there are gaps barriers either to activating one or more of those goals or between those goals, some of the connective tissue. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is, is that we're leaning increasingly into um, a more values centered approach. Mm -hmm. One of those values being equity. Mm -hmm. Now, how you define equity, how it is shared amongst all of us, what it looks like in implementation, that's going to be a process. Yeah. In the meantime, what we're doing is working to hold space for all voices. Mm -hmm. And it works, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how much we share as opposed to not in terms of our objectives, our values, our our ultimate needs. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. My daughter's. No problem. She has a timer on because she takes antibiotics. Yes, she's going to miss that one. Oh, is she not here? No. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Okay, so stakeholders at the table. Yep. So, by the way, these types of coalitions, consortiums, uh, alliances, networks, they're not that copious. So having more Mm -hmm. of like a network Mm -hmm. approach, especially in food, 
has been happening for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always give uh, props to New England and that and those groups Is of states. Is that where states. it began? Absolutely. Mm. And the South are incredible at yeah. doing this work as well. And so from there... Um, what we're finding is, is that because everybody's doing, they're living their lives that whatever that looks like, we're continuing to keep the balls in the air mm-hmm. so that those things don't drop and they are, the importance of them are maintained. And so when we hold that space and bring folks together under, let's say a, a particular issue around a goal, uh, one of the food action plan goals, what ends up happening is we start to identify shared values and shared objectives across a multitude of people across the region. Mm. And so then we say, okay, let's center in that. So then that looks like then we are creating resources and tools Mm -hmm. to either remove the barriers or fill the gaps so that they can work together collaboratively to continue to collectively pursue those objectives. I'm sure you're also making connections, like forming connections between supplier and every single day. Yeah. Every single day. That's the thing that shocks me the most. How often we are told, I didn't even know that existed. I didn't even know that person was in my town. How did I not know this person? That's, that's this sort of magic in all of this, or mm-hmm. I would say the secret ingredient. It's not the Food Action Network. Mm-hmm. It's all of you. Yeah. The more that you become, build your own relationships, that's where all of the innovation and the ability to, which is the other piece, leverage each and every person's assets. What does that look like? Maybe you have some time on Thursdays to, to volunteer to do X, mm-hmm. or maybe you have some staff capacity that you could you know, help out in some way for some other purpose. Maybe you're a really great grant writer. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're a chef who mm-hmm. knows how to take anything and make something incredible out of it. Mm-hmm. And maximize. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So maybe you have equipment that are that's very expensive, mm-hmm. but you'll you're willing to share it. And I can give you tons of examples of these things that, mm-hmm. that um we catalyze. Mm-hmm. So we're not the doing, we are the oh. This is an area of need. Yeah. All right. We're going to put our collective, because mm-hmm. we have, you know, the network is each and every eater, resources, expertise, lived and learned mm-hmm. to come together to address it. We may find additional resources that are needed or create those resources if they don't mm-hmm. exist. And then that catalyst has happened. And then folks can take that and run with it. Um, and then ultimately, <sighs> The thing that will always be is advocacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's very easy for me to, you know, sort of, well, go vote. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Do vote. Yes. Do vote. Like mm-hmm. there is, you have so much more power than you even but realize. But don't you need but- to like create a shortcut? You do the work and the research to see yes. what would be best for the food network. And then you take a position that helps other people know how to vote. Yes. Right? Yeah. And absolutely. And then what we also see is, there's a lot of work to be done with regulators themselves. So yes, there's legislation mm-hmm. that can address a multitude of issues. And if we are working together and people have the information, then they understand why whatever legislation is important to mm-hmm. them personally. But then there are regulators who are working with what they've got. Yeah. And so us coming alongside as partners to say, listen, These are the things that your constituents are, those being regulated, 
don't feel safe in saying. So we're going to have conversations together and we're going to find ways through whether it's new legislation um, or if there are ways that we can, you know, work within the current regulations, but understand that a perfect example are commercial kitchens for public use. Mm-hmm. Diamonds in the rough, those commercial kitchens mm, yes. for a multitude yeah. of reasons. And they exist. They're out there in community. Mm-hmm. They are. Mm-hmm. Few people know about them, but they're available. And what we oftentimes have are regulations like at county, state level, depending on, but with commercial kitchens, usually uh, nine times out of 10 county rate related, where they are regulating uh, safety, uh, all the things that are very, very important, Mm -hmm. but they're going off of regulations with like just a singular type of enterprise from like, you know, 25, 30 years ago, yeah. for example, they're not thinking about how charitable feeding can leverage these commercial yes, kitchens. Yeah. They're not thinking about emerging micro enterprise home mm-hmm. kitchen operations right. that may want to transition into maybe a larger scale. They're not thinking about yeah. food trucks that need a commissary. So you're connecting resources with, and you know, creative resource use basically and giving the time to have more creative conversations Mm -hmm. of addressing issues that quite frankly a regulated and a regulator just don't have yeah and staying on those gaps that exist instead of like everything in life well i don't have time to deal with this right right it's like a bill to pay it's like it's in my inbox like Mm -hmm. it's over there you know on my desk I'll get to it when I get to it. We're those folks that make that promise that yeah. we're going to stay you on drive. that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we didn't. Gosh, it's already been over an hour. <laughs> well, hopefully, I want. But there are a couple things I really want to know. Okay. So one is, of course, your name is so incredible. <laughs> Where does Shakira Miracle come from? So I feel like you should be a magician or something. Yeah. No. It's. It's makes almost no sense. And I, and I, and I'm happy to share it, but, um, I get this question all the time. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Actually just on Tuesday, we were, we were having a big laugh about this. So again, I'm from Kentucky. Yeah. Okay. So my mother comes from a family of 11 brothers and sisters. My oldest aunt had 10 children alone. Whoa. Very big family. Yeah. Um, all of them are like Vivian and Mary Lou and Beverly Ann and mm-hmm. Linda Kay and, you know, Barbara Ann and all these things, literally. Yes. <laughs> and, and the story is told that uh, my grandmother, Viola, wanted to name me. Mm-hmm. And so when I was born and her being present for my birth, that she named me Shakira. Mm -hmm. And the story goes that it was in sort of honor for our indigenous heritage. Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward 40 plus years, and I got one of those ancestry DNA tests for Christmas from my husband. Yes. I don't have a lick of indigenous blood. Okay. I do have Nigerian blood. What? And that's the story that I want to know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But and she didn't know that. No. No. And so there was this sort of legend. Oh my <laughs> that was gosh. This is lore. Yes. And yes. And it's not accurate at all. That is so too funny. the truth is, is 
I don't know how I actually got this name. And it's so bizarre that like none of my cousins or extended relatives or any of them had a name like this. And so what I like to think of is like, it's also sort of a relationship to, to what I do with food too, because the disconnect of where you come from, Mm -hmm. who you are, um, we are reliant on each other to share those stories. Mm -hmm. And so if there are systems that force a disconnect, Mm -hmm. not knowing where you come from, not knowing who you are, first of all, you're losing out on all kinds of richness that you can build into your persona and your, and in your existence. Mm -hmm. It also is very lonely. You know, Mm -hmm. I think about a lot of the, um, Chumash communities that we of course work side by side Mm -hmm. with in food. Um, and it breaks my heart to think about the disconnect and it doesn't take long. But in their case, it was multiple generations yes, yeah. um, in the worst, most traumatic ways. Um, so no way am I trying to parallel, mm. you know, my mis- sure. mysterious, mystical name with this. Mm-hmm. But what I'm driving at is there is something really important about knowing where you come from, mm-hmm. e- regardless of whether or not you take action in it. Mm-hmm. Because you have that knowledge, not only are you then able to share it with, if you have children or grandchildren of your own, and they can sort of wrap their heads around that, but it's also about figuring out how much of that would change your decision making. Mm. And so Mm. if we are disconnected from where our food comes from, how on earth would we ever choose so, a, a different path. Yeah. How could we... Because we don't know the choice exists. Yeah. That's a very good point. If all you know is the, you know, ribeye under plastic in the freezer and you don't know that it comes from an actual animal and what it takes to get that animal yes. to the grocery store, then you're not going to really have many choices to make. Yeah. It's so, so do I eat it or do I not? Exactly. So I feel like, and that word is, that choice of word is important, feel. Um, I do think, but so much of what we are and what we're learning just in the last several years is that humans are actually really more so feelers mm-hmm. than thinkers. Mm-hmm. Large, so neurologically yeah. uh, speaking. If we do think, it's, it's kind a, of amazing. It, it, <laughs> the thinking tr- is triggered by an emotional response, yes, yes, right? Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why I bring that up is... There is so much to say about, rather than judgment, because I truly believe in each and every one of us are doing the best they can yep. Yep. with what was imprinted, so what was inherited. The information we have, our tribe, all our of Our environment, yeah. how, how we were raised, mm-hmm. we can only do. And so many of us are actually limited in how we can adapt and mm. how we can, you know, because we don't know what our choices are because we're disconnected from them, right? Yeah. So I think about a lot when it comes to, even with food, if we knew that we had choices, would we make something different? Mm -hmm. And if we chose something different, would it be better? Would it be worse? Would the power lie in the fact that we had choices to make in the first place? Mm -hmm. Right. 
And I think that in this nation, that's something that we all need to be thinking about is do we really have choice? Um, yeah, we do. We have more choices than we realize, but we don't know that we have them. Mm, right. And so with a lot more education, awareness, and I do find that, that a lot of our work oftentimes is education awareness. Yes, it's hearts sure. and minds. Yeah. And there's a reason why that, that statement is made, hearts and minds. Again, we're feelers. Yeah. We're thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to give ourselves permission to have an emotional response, initial response, and ask why the feelings that we had were what we had. And mm-hmm. um, as someone who had more choices throughout my life yeah. versus people extremely close to me and within my own family who had less choices. Um, what was amazing was that I think that they had more choices, but didn't know that they had them Mm. because of lack of exposure, Mm -hmm. um, lack of learning. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is like with anything and this food is a perfect example of that you can't help but be curious that if more people were educated more broadly about yeah. where their food comes from and what that means, regardless of the choice they make, how empowering would that be that they had more choices that they could make in the, to begin with because yeah. they knew more about the options? Yeah. I truly believe that our system, our food system and other systems would change. Yeah. That's exciting work. Okay. But I have to ask, so this is my last question and we didn't get to nearly enough, not nearly enough, but, um, if it was your last day on earth and you wanted to celebrate because you've done so much good work, I mean, really like celebrate your own accomplishments and what was able to happen because you were part of the driving, uh, what would you eat? What would you drink and who would be there? Oh, (laughs) Could it be anybody? Anybody. Hmm. Sorry. It's a, it's a, it's a, always an emotional. It is? Okay. Thought. Yes. An exercise. It would be Salmon caught off of Vancouver Island sitting somewhere on a beach along the island with my sister Mm. and maybe we'd cook it over an open flame and my kids would be there and my husband would be there and her husband would be there and her kids would be there what would we drink Probably a really, really, really good wine mm-hmm. um, that I would have brought up from the center of Santa Barbara County because yeah. I can't help but say. Because where else? Yeah. Because <laughs> where else uh, goes great with salmon? Oh, and uh, yeah, that's, that's what it would be. It would be, yeah. Yeah. 
it's funny because, uh, yeah, you, there's a lot there clearly. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, those kinds of memories, uh, you know, or projections are, you know, it's funny. I, when I ask people that question, I say that it's a projection, you know, out into the future, but the truth is it's a reflection on Ugh. something, right? You are nailing that. You don't in a just picture that scenario out of nowhere. Like, Oh, I'd like to be in, you know, Dubai and eating. No, 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 no. It's not about where you imagine you'd like to be. It's about, it's about looking back. And, um, that is what drives our work. It's what drives our communities. Those are the kinds of experiences that push us and compel us to do the work that we do. So thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that. Absolutely. It was hard, but um, it was true. Yeah. I just love what you're doing. I respect and admire everything that Santa Barbara County Food Action Network is doing, and I really appreciate you driving up here. Oh, (laughs) first of all, the privilege is mine, (laughs) and to be in your home is huge, Mm. and I just, um, just coming here, I want to tell you was, uh, a gift to me mm-hmm. because I'm really struggling with the urgent and the important. It's been a theme in oh my, my gosh, life. the quadrants, they're so hard. Oof. And, um, I know I'm not alone in this. Oh, this is a human problem. You got it. Yeah. And oftentimes I am missing out on the very things that I'm essentially preaching community connection, shared meal, right? Like all these things that are, that really drives us as humans. Mm -hmm. And instead it's about the the doing, the doing, the doing, the doing. And I keep reminding myself that if I were no longer here, none of that stuff, none of that doing would matter at Mm -mm. all. Mm -mm. So getting me out of the work, like I know those things are, some of them are very important. Mm -hmm. Um, but the vast majority of them oftentimes would be accelerated and move forward more effectively. The more I'm out and being in connection with people like you. Totally. Well, and keep the fires burning, you know, Okay, Shakira Miracle. (laughs) You're a miracle. Doing miracle work. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of the Consumed Podcast. If you like what you've heard here, please like and leave a review. It really does help. And if you want more information about any of the guests on Consumed, you can find a page of notes for each episode at letsgetconsumed.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for the Consumed Newsletter, and contact info for me in case you have comments, compliments, questions, or suggestions for people you think should be on the show. I'm Jamie Lewis. Thanks, as always, for listening.